And then how would we get back to pre-pandemic spending levels? How much would that help if we were able to do that? Well, again, we went from $4.4 trillion the fiscal year before the pandemic to pretty well bumping up over six. And now we've pretty well laid in a new baseline at $6.4 trillion. So over four years, extra $2 trillion. Uh, but because of inflation, we went from you know, $300 billion in interest to six or $700 billion. That's locked in. You can't do anything about that. But it has to start with looking at all of this. And we need to start prioritizing things, particularly on the discretionary side. And then take a look at these programs and, you know, how do we rein in healthcare spending? How can we spend Medicare dollars more efficiently and provide actually better healthcare? So there are all kinds of innovations that in the private sector, you would be instituting those. But in government, it's just impossible to, to make changes for the positive in government. All, all you can really do in government seems is just spend more money, throw more money at the problem. Of course, that never fixes the problem. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. You know, as the national debt reaches $33 trillion and everyday items continue to go up because of inflation, individuals and businesses are having to look at their budgets and cut expenses. And as Americans are having to make these decisions, it's becoming important for Congress to not only stop spending, but to look at making spending cuts as well. This astronomical debt not only threatens the financial stability of our nation, but places a burden on future generations who will be the ones to live through the consequences of these decisions. Now, today's guest has advocated for fiscal responsibility and limited government. He sits on various Senate committees, including the Committee on the Budget, Committee on Finance, and the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And he has showcased his dedication to addressing critical issues facing the nation. Before heading to Congress in 2010, he spent decades working in the manufacturing industry where he did everything from operating the equipment to keeping the company books and from selling its products to managing staff. His work ethic started during his youth, where he did a variety of odd jobs, including mowing lawns, shoveling snow, delivering papers, and working as a caddy. I'd like to welcome Wisconsin U.S. Senator Ron Johnson to the show. Senator, thanks for being with us. Well, Jeff, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I first of all, I have here that I have to ask you about the Wisconsin phenomenon called the Supper Club, and which are the best ones in Wisconsin? So tell us about that. I can't name a particular one. That would be unfair. But the Supper <laughs> Club is just kind of a tradition, Friday nights, uh, Saturday nights, uh, people gather. That these you know, Generally, they've, they've been around for many, many years, decades, and they serve uh, large quantities of food, <clears throat> generally pretty basic menu. Uh, good old fashions. Uh, so pe people enjoy gathering with the community. And it's just a, it's a wonderful Wisconsin tradition. Yeah, you, you know, you have had uh, you're quite a, a quite a U.S. center. I got to say, I, I'm, I'm impressed to have you on the program. You, first of all, you've been a great policy champion for Americans for Prosperity. Uh, you have a, a seat that I think every cycle, everyone says, oh, gosh, this is going to be a tough uh, election for for the senator, but uh, you are you are such a survivor, and you do such a great job at the grassroots. Just just talk about how important maybe grassroots are 
to to your effort and to your U.S. Senate race? Well, remember, we all used to ridicule President Obama because he was a community organizer. Well, that community organizer won the presidency twice in a row. Uh, second time when nobody really thought he should have based on the mess he was creating. Uh, so, I mean, elections are about votes and about voters. And you have to go talk to voters and you need to get people uh, at the grassroots level talking to their friends, their family, uh, their uh, neighbors. Uh, it's just crucial. Uh, one of the problems conservatives have is you take a look at, for example, Wisconsin. We're pretty much a red state except in a few regions, Milwaukee, Madison. There's a place up uh, kind of in the in the northwest part of the state there that are a little bit more liberal. Uh, but the rest of the state is red. But the rest of that state is rural. It's small towns. I mean, the same you can say the same thing of, of, Phil, or of Pennsylvania. It's uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in between. You, you look at the county map of America. Uh, red counties are or, or conservative counties are painted red. And uh, blue are, are blue. The, the entire nation's red, except for some very bright blue dots. So the challenge we have as conservatives is, again, we need to go find votes, energize people throughout the land. Every little town, every little burg, every little municipality. Uh, Democrats just have to concentrate on the big cities. It's just a far easier task. Yeah, you know, you had a uh, you, you had a 30 plus year uh, experience in manufacturing before you got elected to the Senate. How do you think that background helped you in the U.S. Senate? Well, f- unfortunately, there are just very few members, uh, staff, bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. that have any experience in, which means very little knowledge of, and maybe even worse, very l- little respect for the private sector. Uh, they just truly do not understand how hard business is. You know, why so many businesses fail? Because it's, it's tough to compete. They just look at businesses as their cash cow, and they're just going to want to keep tapping them for more and more tax revenue so they can spend money and, uh, you know, provide benefits to people to help get themselves elected. So I, I think it's that perspective of the private sector that uh, is very valuable to me. I, I, br- I bring a completely different perspective, but also my educational background is in accounting. And so I, I look at things through a financial lens. Um, most, most members of Congress have some kind of legal background and, you know, I, I haven't found too many lawyers that like numbers that much. They like words. Uh, I, I look at numbers. You, you, let's face it. Uh, accounting is the language of business. You, you need to be able to lay out the financial situation so you understand exactly what's happening. Uh, a quick little story. Uh, d- during the omnibus debate last December, December 2022, uh, I asked my Republican colleagues, said, anybody know how much money we spent last year? I mean, the total federal government spending. Nobody answered. So, so then I went out to the, the media, Washington media. These folks are supposed to be reporting on this. Asked them the same question. I, I get one, said, one, one reporter said, well, I think it's over a trillion dollars. That's discretionary spending. The answer, by the way, was $6.2 trillion. Wow. Um, and nobody knew. We're the largest financial entity in the world. You know, Congress, you can kind of look at us as the board of directors of this largest financial entity. And we never talk about how much money we spend. You know, we deal with in percentages or discretionary versus mandatory spending. Oh, we can't fix the deficit because it's all mandatory. You know, all we have to do is discretionary. Uh, it's completely out of control. Um, it's, it's, you know, again, I, I often say I'm, I'm not an optimist. Uh, we've got significant challenges facing us, and the vast majority of people in Washington, D.C. are just whistling past the graveyard. Well, we've got, we've got $33 t- trillion in debt. 
So what does Congress, in your mind, need to do to get that budget under control? Well, I think we're almost at 34. Uh, we're on a path to exceed 50 within 10 years. Uh, last year, we had a $2 trillion deficit. The year before that, we had a trillion. Um, it's, it's somewhat mangled because of the debt forgiveness that was ruled un unconstitutional, but those are the basic apples to apples comparison. A trillion dollar, so two years ago was a deficit, this year, two trillion. In 2019, we spent $4.4 .4 trillion. Then you had the pandemic and you had a, the uniparty went on a spending spree and basically increased that baseline by $2 trillion after about 6.4. Uh, we actually increased mandatory spending by more than half a trillion dollars during that time period. So that's, now that's locked in. So, you know, our constituents don't want us touching Social Security and Medicare. I understand that. We need to do everything we can to save those programs. But the only way we can do that is we need to look at the entire budget. Now, when I say that, you know, I get falsely accused of wanting to put Social Security in the chopping block or start cutting Social Security. And that's not what I'm talking about. If, if we don't get our deficit spending under control, we will not have the wherewithal to plus up the benefits to meet those promises when the trust funds run out. And let's face it, the trust funds, it's just an accounting convention. It's like a contra account. Uh, the, the U.S. government bond sitting in the Social Security Trust Fund has no value to the U.S. government. When, when the trust fund presents that bond to pay off benefits, Treasury just has to go out and, and try and borrow more money. And what we're going to find is we increase debt, creditors around the world are going to look at the United States and say, you know, you're kind of a credit risk. I'll loan you money, but not at that interest rate. And we're already experiencing that with the, the Biden's inflation. Uh, interest rates are, are starting to skyrocket for the federal government, and you know we're, we're doubling the amount of interest expense, which is a mandatory spending. You've got to pay that off or you're in default, and then even worse things happen. So we're, we're in a huge mess right now, but the only way to really fix it is we need to look at all of government spending. Uh, we need to start prioritizing. We need to start cutting the, the nonsense out. For example, $400 billion of green energy boondoggles is what the Democrats passed in their Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, talk about Orwellian named uh, bills, just like the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act did the exact opposite. And of course, all this massive deficit spending actually sparked uh, inflation. Real quick, you, I, I, you, know, you hear percentage inflations, all type of thing. What, what I like talking about is the dollar you held at the start of the Biden administration is now worth 85 cents. That damage has been done. It is permanent. So even though interest, uh, inflation rates are down, Biden's inflation has already kicked in and American families are suffering because of it. Yeah, they, they truly are. You talked a little bit about the pandemic and, it, you know, literally our debt situation was was an emergency for sure before the pandemic. But let's talk about the pandemic. How much did that make the debt issue worse or the spending in Congress become worse because of that pandemic spending and then how would we get back to pre-pandemic spending levels? How much would that help if we were able to do that? Well, again, we went from $4.4 trillion the fiscal year before the pandemic to pretty well bumping up over six. And now we've pretty well laid in a new baseline at $6.4 trillion. So over four years, extra $2 trillion, you figure it's, you know, six to $8 trillion is what the pandemic cost us. Uh, but because of inflation, we went from, you know, $300 billion in interest to six or $700 billion. That's locked in. You can't do anything about that. You know, we have all these uh, cost of living automatic in indexes to in to Social Security. That's locked in. So Social Security increased by about $100 billion. It's about $1.3 trillion now. So 
All these things are automatic. It's all an automatic pilot. And so how, how do you fix these things? It's, it's going to be a real challenge, but it has to start with looking at all of this. And we need to start prioritizing things, particularly on the discretionary side, and then take a look at these programs and, you know, how do we rein in healthcare spending? How can we spend Medicare dollars more efficiently and provide actually better healthcare? You know, you've got expert systems now. You have telemedicine. It's not a panacea, but uh, it can be delivered to more efficiently and with actually better care. So there are all kinds of innovations that in the private sector, you would be instituting those. But in government, it's just impossible to, to make changes for the positive in government. All, all you can really do in government seems is just spend more money, throw more money at the problem. And of course, that never fixes the problem. Well, one of the things that you've worked on is trying to ensure the accountability, more accountability or some accountability really in the Medicaid program by getting the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services to release information on improper uh, payment rates. What, what have you been able to learn from the release of that information? Well, we, we know that uh, improper payments into Medicare and Medicaid exceed $100 billion a year. Now, some of those go, you know, they go in both directions, but primarily it's overpayment. And part of the big problem you have there is states, you know, particularly with Medicaid, uh, they will sign up ineligible uh, participants. And it's to their benefit, they get more federal government uh, money flowing in. So the states have absolutely no incentive to uh, making sure that only eligible people are are you know, getting benefits. And there's all kinds of different games. They call them gimmicks. I would call it uh, legalized fraud in terms of also driving up the, the reimbursement uh, to the states for some of these uh, programs. So, so it's a massive problem. Uh, you've got government intervention into a private sector uh, market, and that's healthcare. Uh, combined with third-party payments of insurance, we've by and large driven consumerism out of healthcare which means we've driven out the benefits of free market competition out of healthcare, but also out of education. But those are the two areas of our economy we are always complaining about, largely because of government involvement and really the driving out of consumerism and free market, uh, uh, the benefit of free market competition out of both those sectors. So to me, the solution is reintroduce consumerism into healthcare reintroduce consumerism into education. I think you'd be amazed at how dramatic the improvement would be both in the quality as well as the lower the cost of the care. That's such a great point, uh, talking about both the healthcare sector and the education sector uh, and, and driving, you know, as government creeps in, more government creeps into the decision-making process, as you mentioned, less private sector, less free market in those systems. It's amazing on this show, we've done a lot of shows talking about the ways in which both the federal government and state governments intervene in healthcare, you know, and, and li really limit the choices of Americans by doing that. What can we do to, to uh, increase competition in the healthcare sector, particularly? Well, what I would do is, again, you take a look at what do we have right now? Obamacare was largely high deductible insurance plans, which I don't have a problem with if that's the way the system is designed. It really ought to be that way. Insurance should be for the catastrophic type of situations and most health care at the lower end should be paid for by the consumer. That, that would be the, the ideal situation. So, so we're not paying insurance for first dollar coverage. You're paying insurance for when you get seriously ill or you have an accident. Uh, you, could accept, you could take really what they did with Obamacare, take those high deductible plans, and underneath there, create health savings accounts and start shifting 
uh, a lot of the payments made to healthcare providers right back to the consumer. So that you go into a doctor's office and you start asking, uh, how much is this, how much is this procedure going to cost? Well, that's ridiculous. Or, you know, no, I don't think I need that third test. Um, but, but again, until you literally have the consumer uh, make, involved in making those purchase decisions, you're, you're not going to rein in the cost of health care. Yeah, Senator, that's such a, a, a great point and an issue that I think most people don't understand. They, there is almost no transparency in health care to the, to the actual patient. And they need to have some skin in the game too, right? If they're not going to be able to save money by skipping, you know, maybe an unnecessary test, there's just no incentive there. How do we change this system to get government out of making those decisions and let it be more about the doctor and the patient making those decisions? Well, the fact is nobody knows how much healthcare procedures cost. The doctors don't know. You got the accountants working at the clinic or in the hospital, working with the accountants at CMS or in the insurance agencies. They're the only ones that know how much this costs. You take a look at the drug formula. You take a look at, uh, you know, pharmacy benefit managers that that actually are saving costs on on drugs, uh, which is why Big Pharma is all for PBM reform is because they'd like to drive PBMs out of business because they actually are reducing the cost of drugs for seniors. But it's just not a transparent process. So you've got you've got to bring transparency through, but not through a government edict. That'll never work. You bring pricing transparency th- into the system by actually making people pay for things themselves. It's, it's the only way it's going to work. You, you, you can't dictate this from the government. So, again, I, I would recommend the establishment of health savings accounts. And then you slowly but surely start identifying uh, parts of, of uh, health care that aren't going to be covered by your insurance plan anymore. But you'll be covered by your uh, health savings account. Um, you know, unfortunately, we've got this position in, in uh, America where people just don't think they have to pay for health care. They're paying for it. They're just not doing it in a transparent fashion, and they're way overpaying for it because of this third-party payer system, either through insurance or through government. So we need to bring consumers back in the equation. We need people making individual purchase decisions as much as possible for as uh, for as much of the health care as we possibly can do, and then leaving insurance for the big catastrophic. It's, it's no different than your car insurance. Uh, you know, you're going to pay an awful lot if you have first-dollar coverage on your car insurance. But most people carry, you know, multiple thousand dollar deductibles and they only have insurance for for crashes and and larger losses. Right. Uh, Let's talk about reimbursement rates very quickly. And then uh, I've got lots of other questions to get to. But, you know, this is we have government dictating on Medicaid, Medicare and other things what a procedure shall cost. And, you know, it's causing access problems, too, If, if that number isn't the right number. Uh, a doctor just will refuse to see those patients. Isn't this a growing problem too in healthcare when government decides what that reimbursement rate should be? Yeah, when government gets involved in any kind of market, it screws it up. It just screws it up. Yeah. Uh, you take a look at uh, you know the rationing that occurs in England with their national health service. You take a look at the rationing that occurs in Canada. Uh, we'll, we'll have the same problem here in America. Yeah, we, we already have a problem in terms of uh, drug shortages with, with cheap generic drugs. Uh, you drive the price down too too far and people don't even want to participate in that market. So, you know, central planning simply doesn't work. I mean, h- how many times do we have to have failure of government central planning before people actually get the concept that, hey, this doesn't work. 
You know, it works. It's free market competition. It's not perfect, but it's a, it's a far better system. It more efficiently allocates capital in the economy. And it's that invisible hand of consumerism that provides the best possible price, the best possible quality, the best possible level of customer service. That's what a free market offers. And the further you get away from it, the less you have of those three things. Uh, staying with healthcare, why was it so important to pass the uh, the Right to Try Act? Because America is based on freedom. It, it is the one essential ingredient in America that, that has created this marvel we call America. It's, it's free and it allows people to dream and aspire and build and create, you know, our nation. And so when all of a sudden people don't have the freedom to try a drug that hasn't been fully approved, and sometimes these drugs can take years and years to approve. And I'm not opposed to that, by the way. You need long-term studies. We should have taken more time on the vaccine. It's certainly not mandated it for the COVID vaccine because we don't know the long-term safety stats. So it takes a long time to approve these drugs. But when you're terminal, why shouldn't you have the freedom, if the manufacturers are willing to allow you to try a drug, to access a drug as opposed to have the FDA say, no, you're just going to have to die. You know, give up hope. Uh, we're going to make that decision for you. Uh, I think that's just simply wrong. So, again, they're, it's not quite as simple as, as uh, uh, just people saying, I want that drug. I mean, there, there are multiple parties in that decision. But by and large, it should be the patient and the doctor making that decision as opposed to a federal bureaucrat. Uh, changing topics a little bit. You're on the Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee. And one of the things you've worked on was to get information on this dif- disinformation governance board, uh, even though the board was shut down, why was it important to you to, to to you to learn about what they were trying to do? Because we have a bill of rights, and freedom of speech is in the First Amendment, and you know, government sh- shall not infringe the right to free speech, and that's exactly what the federal government did under President Obama. I mean, President Biden. They're infringing on Americans' free speech. Uh, what they were doing is unconstitutional. And w- where we got the most information was in the, the Missouri and Louisiana lawsuit against the federal government. And it's opened up you know, all the wrongdoing, all, all the censorship, all the infringing upon our free speech. Um, but again, it's you know, free speech is essential to freedom. Yeah, it, it, it surely is. And the government, again, you talked about... Uh, intrusion in the healthcare market. The government shouldn't pick winners and losers, and it sure shouldn't pick winners and losers in speech. And that's really what happened is the government, particularly during COVID, uh, we saw it uh, really rear its head where they were trying to decide what was the truth. Well, the government doesn't know the truth. The truth is what Americans believe, uh, you know, to be the truth. And and the, the First Amendment respects and protects even stuff that isn't true. Uh, this is really a dangerous precedent, I think, when the government tries to pick winners and losers in speech. You know, I think Justice Brandeis, uh, over 100 years ago, uh, this is to paraphrase him, but they were looking at a case where there, there was inf- misinformation that could have harmed public and the public health. They said in those situations where there is time, the solution isn't censorship. The solution is more free speech. You know, and one thing I've certainly found, uh, you know, being at the tip of the spear, pushing early treatment. Uh, questioning the the safety signals that were just screaming at us on the COVID vaccines from the VAERS system, 
Um, you know, one of the things I've, I've noticed is the doctors who had the courage and compassion to treat COVID patients, the, the ones who were actually speaking out about their concerns about the, the health impact of the, co- of the COVID vaccines, they were happy to speak out. They were vilified. Their careers were destroyed. They were sued. They were ter- their employment terminated. But the Fauci of the world, the federal health officials, the doctors on the other side, people like P- Peter Hotez, would never engage in a public dialogue with them. I mean, Peter Hotez, a big you know, vaccine pusher, was offered, I think, $2.6 million is what the latest figure was, donated to his favorite charity just to go on and, and debate RFK Jr. on the COVID vaccines. Now, again, RFK Jr., very learned, I mean, very knowledgeable about this, but he's not a doctor. I mean, a doctor like Peter Hotez should have no problem debating an attorney like RFK Jr. when it comes to vaccines, and yet he wouldn't even accept a $2.6 million donation to his charity because he's afraid of engaging in public dialogue. What does that tell you about the people who've been pushing these vaccines, that have not been transparent, who have hidden the truth from the American public? Well, and this issue really is one of free speech, right? It's not even about the vaccine. I mean, people can have their views on the, on the vaccine. The question is, can all those views be heard? And that's really what this is about. And should the government ever have the opportunity or the right to shut down people's freedom of speech on those issues? We're seeing right now in New Zealand. Again, I don't know about the data set coming out of New Zealand. There's a whistleblower uh, that uh, apparently uh, you know, ran the program to accumulate all the data on vaccine and vaccine injuries. And it's pretty shocking results. But he's a whistleblower. He, he released that information. They arrested him the next day. Um, now, again, I, you know, they're arresting him because he got in these databases and illegally released information. But why isn't the government of New Zealand? Why isn't the government of the United States? Why aren't our federal health agencies, for example, providing their analysis on the VAERS system? They have sta- standard operating procedures. They're going to do these different types of analysis, uh, proportional reporting ratios, uh, empirical or empirical Bayesian analysis. Uh, they were supposed to be doing that. They say they've done it. They just won't release those analyses to the public. Why? We are paying their salaries. We are funding their agencies. This is information that the public has a right to know. And yet these petty little dictatorial bureaucrats refuse to be honest and transparent with the American public. And again, again, regardless of what you think of, of the COVID vaccine or early treatment or anything else like that, I would hope most Americans would agree that the federal government ought to be honest and transparent, not opaque when it comes to this kind of public health information. Yes, no question. It's a freedom of speech issue uh, on all of these things. That's one of the things that I think uh, we've seen. And this be my final question, Senator. Uh, so many people, I think, don't have tolerance for the freedom of speech and the views of their fellow Americans. That's really an important aspect that both of our that our founders believed in, but also that has allowed our country and our Bill of Rights to survive all these years is the idea of tolerance of other people's views. Your thoughts on tolerance of speech? Well, the Constitution, the First Amendment is not a suicide pact. I mean, there are certain types of speech like yelling fire in a movie theater that are illegal and that's appropriate. Or, for example, uh, I have no problem censoring ISIS snuff videos, okay? Uh, but in general, as, as Louis Brandeis said, if, if, if there's controversies and you have time, the solution 
is always more speech, not less, certainly not censorship. And, you know, from my standpoint, uh, if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, what is the greatest threat facing our nation? I, I would have said our debt and deficit, which we're not addressing. It's, it's even worse than it was a couple of years ago. But now I think the greatest threat to our nation is our division. We're a horribly divided nation, but we're not a naturally divided people. I want people to think about that. You know, on most things, you know, Americans, quite honestly, citizens of the world agree what we want, the goals in life. We want safety. We want security. We want to be able to have enough opportunity, prosperity to, to provide for our families and for us in our retirement. These are the major life issues that we are in agreement on. So why are we so divided? The answer is we have political figures, people like President Obama, President Biden. Uh, we have political groups like the radical left, like the Democrat Party that are purposefully dividing us. They are pushing hate. And I'm just asking, you know, all conservatives, uh, all, all patriots resist that. Uh, we, we do need to be a tolerant society, but the way we express that tolerance is, is by accepting other people, ex ex accepting divergent views, being kind as best as, as best you can, uh, putting the best construction on things, you know, thinking the best of people, and really trying to focus on the areas of agreement, because when we focus on that, We'll find out that we, we agree on the vast majority of things with other people as opposed to disagree. Such a great message, uh, Senator. Thank you. You're, you're such a great policy champion for Americans for Prosperity. We appreciate all you do, and thanks for taking time to join us. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. Well, Senator Ron Johnson, a great policy champion, uh, talking about so many critical issues and none more critical than our fiscal situation that we find ourselves in at the federal level, federal government has got to stop its spending addiction. And we talked about how it increased dramatically under COVID and those numbers haven't come down. That would be a start. At least let's get us as a baseline back to pre-COVID spending levels. And we've just got to get some fiscal discipline in the system. Uh, what a great point that the Senator made about uh, free enterprise and free markets and how effective they are. We talk about this all the time in education and in healthcare. And isn't that the truth? Uh, just having more transparency in education and healthcare, having more choices in education and healthcare, and less government intrusion in the decisions in those areas would be so helpful to drive down costs and to increase the quality of uh, service in both education and healthcare. Hey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being with us again and everything you do to make this podcast successful. We're having great success. We're really uh, growing and more and more people listening our downloads, uh, growing our video views on Facebook, on YouTube, continue to grow. And that's because of you sharing this podcast, sharing the word out with folks. Uh, remember, liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Don't take liberty and freedom for granted. Go out there, defend freedom and liberty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.